0: Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring new conversations on all things biology in our state. Today's guest is Ben Parslow. Ben is a PhD student at Flinders University and the South Australian Museum, studying parasitoid wasps. Ben Parslow, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: It's a pleasure, Brad.
0: Great. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do.
1: Uh, So I'm currently a PhD candidate at the Flinders University and the South Australian Museum. So I'm part of the Legs Lab at Flinders University, and we do a lot of work on insect sociality as well as phylogenetics. And uh, myself, I'm a systematist, and I work on parasitoid wasps. But I kind of work on uh, a really cool genus of wasps called Gastroptheon and so they're kind of specialized parasitoid wasps that uh, sneak into native bee nests and lay their eggs in there and the baby wasps eat the baby bees. So I'm currently doing a project looking at the systematics of the group in Australia as well as their host associations.
0: Cool, so parasitoidism will be the, the topic for today's podcast, but um, first I'd just like to know, it's a very specific thing to study, how in the world did you end up focusing on one particular aspect of, of the hymenoptera, the parasitoids?
1: Uh, so I'm a little bit unique in the way that ever since I was a pup, ever since I was very young, all I've ever wanted to do was work on bugs uh, <laughs> to the point that when my mum told me what a bug scientist was, an entomologist, I used to run around screaming that all the time. So uh, The word entomologist? Oh, it was a great thing to teach a young child. <laughs> but um, I kind of just stayed with that interest of entomology. And as I started to kind of move into university, I started to learn more about Hymenoptera, which is ants, bees and wasps. And they really appealed to me because they do everything, they kind of are everywhere, they do kind of all these fantastic ecosystem Surfaces. they're parasitoids, they're predators, they're pollinators, and yeah, I started doing a little bit more on wasps and realised that parasitoids are where the really cool, interesting, weird things are.
0: Cool, and they certainly are strange. So, I feel like a lot of people would be familiar with what a parasite is, but parasitoidism is very specific. Can you explain what parasitoidism is?
1: Yeah, so a, a really easy way I like to think about it is parasites... Uh, live off a host and never kill it so in this example a parasite is something like a tick or a leech and the way I like to describe it is you never kill the cash cow because if you kind of uh, kill your food source then you have nothing left to eat and if you're not able to disperse easily well that's a problem Uh, whereas a parasitoid you always kill the host to complete the development. And there's lots of kind of different kind of categories of parasitoids so they can be ectoparasitoids which live on the outside of um, other animals or other insects and then you have internal parasitoids um, uh, endoparasitoids uh, but to complete their development you always kill the host
0: so just one particular one part of the insects life cycle is parasitoidal so for the rest of its life what's that hymenopterid doing
1: I uh, well, so it, it will always be a parasitoid. Most parasitoids uh, live off the host. So a great example is a lot of um, kind of ichomonid parasitoid wasps which are uh, endoparasitoids. So they will, as an example, um, lay their eggs inside a caterpillar and the larvae will live inside that caterpillar's body and actually consume its body. Uh, uh, flesh, so we'll eat the non important internal organs as it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not until those late stages in its development, where it's kind of reaching final instars in those larval forms, that it will sever the notochord, kind of like uh, cut off the nervous system, or will finally kill the host. And then, those situations, they often pupate inside the host's shell, their body. And then, once they actually enclose to adults, will emerge from that point.
0: So, is the adult part of the parasitoid life cycle is that long are they feeding on other things or do they live a short life where their whole objective is to just lay their eggs inside another host
1: well i think it's it kind of because there's so many different types of parasitoids there's lots of different kind of life history strategies and there's lots of really different interesting things they do but as a standard when you look at wasps as an adult they usually eat nectar and things like that like whenever you see insects like wasp collecting other insects it's always food for their larvae so once they actually become an adult they live kind of a standard life where they're looking for mates and then the main part of their life is looking for hosts again so a lot of morphological adaptations or behavioral adaptations that these parasitoids have is to locate those hosts and then to exploit them
0: like the really long ovipositors uh
1: my favorite is the ovipositor so just for a bit of clarification there, when people talk about wasps, often people talk about kind of the nasty pasties, the uh, yellow jackets or the European hornets and the things that ruin your picnic. These are kind of like stinging social wasps. And now these are only about 33% of all wasps that kind of fall into that category. But then the other 67% are the parasitoids. That's astounding. And so instead of having this needle-like hypodermic syringe that injects venom, they often have this egg-laying straw called an ovipositor. And that's what they use to kind of either inject eggs into insect hosts or into concealed locations so you don't always need to inject your eggs into something to be a parasitoid you can always lay it near them or on the outside of them or somewhere nearby and then your larvae is kind of a little bit mobile and kind of moves towards that host and finds it
0: cool so the particular group of parasitoid wasps that you looked at can you tell us a little about their ecology
1: Yeah, so they're really interesting. So the genus Gastroptheon is actually found all over the world, it's cosmopolitan. But supposedly we have probably the highest biodiversity here in Australia. So currently there's 114 described species. And through my PhD research, I'm trying to re-describe all the current Australian fauna because the keys are quite out of date, and as well as describe all the new species. And what makes them really cool is, just to throw a spanner in the mix they're often referred to as predator ilquinines. So instead of being explicit parasitoids, they're predators inside the nests of a host. And this is because these wasps uh, attack native bees and solitary wasps, so they wait for the native bee or wasp to leave their nest to collect provisions, and then they sneak in using their long ovipositor and oviposit into that nest, and they either lay their eggs on the host egg itself or in the food provisions, or sometimes tuck it into the wall where it can't be found. The host then returns, none the wiser, seals up the cell, works on the next cell. And then the gastroption larvae hatches before the host larvae and will often consume the egg or early instar larvae before moving on to the provisions and cleaning out the pantry. And then it just continues its development inside that cell. So it's a little bit strange, it's technically a parasitoid, but the term that a lot of researchers previously working on the group have used is predator ilquinines because it kind of describes that activity of the larvae being initially a predator inside that nest.
0: Whoa, I did not know that. That's very interesting. So I had a look at the papers you published from two of the species you described, and I noticed that one of them had this really long ovipositor, but the other one had a relatively short ovipositor, why would one have such a long one and the other one have such a short one
1: so with the genus gastropion we have this fantastic variation in morphology and so they i like to always say they come in lots of sizes shapes colors and flavors because (laughs) because you have ones that are really stocky in appearance with really short ovipositors and then you have ones that have very elongated bodies Or have really long ovipositors or kind of like specialized structures and what we think is probably happening here is that their morphological specialization is linked to their host. Now we don't know very much about their host associations at all so when we look at kind of the worldwide known host associations there's 500 described species worldwide and I think we know think 85 host records from those 500 but a lot of those are for i think just 41 species of gastropodon and nearly all of those are from the palearctic and near arctic region so in australia of published records we have 10 host associations and so that's nothing considering mm. we have probably one of the highest diversities here so my project at the moment is to look at that a little bit more and try to collect information in regards to host associations and then help map that back onto a phylogenetic tree so i can hopefully look at how these host associations are correlating with morphological adaptations and then see how that is reflected in the actual evolutionary biology of the group
0: Right. so when i think about a systematist i don't typically think of someone going out into the field and doing you know field collections of things like that are you do you have a fieldwork component to your study did you actually go out and look for these things
1: every day field day if I could I'd you field ready every single day so field works actually probably my favorite part of Isn't it my research of <laughs> it, it really is like I do spend a lot of time in the field because firstly we need to collect material but also seeing them in their natural um, environment and interacting with their hosts is really important. Because there's no information really in Australia, the more kind of accurate field observations we can get, the better. So a lot of our information on this genus across the whole world comes from very old um, papers, 1900s, and often by generalist naturalists who see them flying around a mixed host assemblage, which could be a, a nesting aggregation with lots of different bees and wasp species in it, and they see the wasp kind of flying around and inspecting cavities and straight away say it's using host yeah. A. But you know through further research when we look at these aggregations there's nest supersession where you might have aggressive uh, cavity nesting species taking over other host nests just due to the lack of resources and so you can never really be sure without proper rearing information. And so I try to get out there as much as possible to kind of see these things and write them down and that, data
0: Yeah, it's kind of like seeing uh, an insect on a flower and just assuming that it's its pollinator. You might
1: might not be its pollinator at all. Could be perching. Could be on its way through. Or definitely could have a could um, be lost. <laughs> could be have a really intricate relationship with that flower. Mm.
0: So I was curious about the evolution of parasitism. Do we have a rough idea of how something like something so specific might have
1: evolved? So. The way I like to kind of think about this, and from some early papers on the topic, parasitism probably in Hymenoptera evolved from a form of kleptoparasitism, which is essentially like cuckoo birds where you're stealing nest resources, and it probably evolved in some kind of way where you are nesting in a cavity of some kind, whether it's a gall or a burrow, and you have other Hymenopterans provisioning those nests with the same provisions that you would use, whether it's insect prey or pollen provisions or something along those lines. But in the event that you accidentally enter someone else's nest thinking it's a suitable nesting site and you find the pantry's already full, they've already loaded the fridge up, you think, well, I can easily just lay my egg in here, seal it up like it's my own, and I'm done. I don't have to spend all this time collecting provisions. So this kleptoparasitic kind of strategy was probably developed first. And then once it was realized how successful it is, because face it, like not having to do the hard yards, collecting all the food yourself, all you have to do is find a nest, wait for the host to leave, and then you can exploit that resource. is really successful, really easy. So once you kind of got that down pack, you can then start to specialize a little bit more, kind of move into niches that no other insect is really using and once you've got them down packed whether it's your evolving specialized viruses to help you deal with internal immune systems or if you're using specialized morphology or ovipositor structures to allow you to attack spider webs or spider's eggs inside spider's webs that's kind of your niche now and no one can kind of fight that off you yeah thinking about
0: uh immune response of the host what do host species do to prevent being parasitoidized
1: (laughs) well Obviously, the hosts don't enjoy this process. So when it comes to uh, this kind of host and parasite uh, interaction, the hosts are always trying to uh, outcompete the parasitoids, the parasites in this situation. Um, a great example, and something that I don't have a lot of experience in, but it's kind of quite commonly known about, is um, some ichneumonid wasps actually have. Uh, co-evolved with viruses, which when they actually oviposit into a, a caterpillar host or kind of a, a host insect, they inject this virus in and the virus is there to help inhibit or disable the host's immune system. Because once you inject your egg into a host's body cavity, there's a lot of different things you have to deal with. Firstly, you're inside a, an insect's body. It's no longer that you're just free moving across substrate, you're now moving through the hemolymph inside an insect. So you have the immune system to deal with but also just the kind of roadmap. you have to be in the right spaces you can't just eat indiscriminately unless that's your life history strategy the slash and burn you just consume everything and that's all the food you need but then there's a lot of parasitoids that need to wait for their host to grow to later stages uh, there's a great example of a, a quite uncommonly collected wasp called aulicus the genus is aulicus and these are Wasps that lay their eggs in um, longicorn beetle larvae, Cerambycidae larvae, in trees, and so they actually use their antennae like echolocation sensors. So they tap right. with their antennae, then listen with uh, ears in their legs called subgenal organs, and they use it like a kind of echolocation to find the larvae under the wood. And when they find it, they'll drill through the wood with their ovipositor, lay an egg into the larvae. But the larvae stays, the wasp larvae, stays in that beetle larvae for quite a long period of time because serimbicid larvae can live for a very long time in trees. Mm-hmm. So because there can be so like, uh, such a large amount of wood between the larvae and the uh, surface of the tree, if you consume the host larvae and try and merge, you have to dig through, let's just say, off the top of my head, maybe like three inches, 75 mil of uh, wood. That's a lot of work. So they actually stay in that larvae in some cases until the larvae comes right next to the surface or near the surface before completing their final stage of their development where they actually kill the host pupate inside and therefore you're only digging through five mil of wood to get out
0: wow that is very specific
1: it gets really crazy well one of my favorites and it's a really great case example is there's a, a really weird family called trigonality and I've only ever really encountered them in the field once or twice. And it's always a real uh, excitement to find them because I don't see them very often. But they have a very specialised ovipositor. So it's not uh, kind of egg-laying straw. It looks like a little pinching crab claw at the back of their metasoma, their abdomen. And what they do is they find leaves and they lay their eggs around the margin of the leaves, so right on the edge. And the reason they do this is because they're waiting for a caterpillar to come along and actually consume the eggs. So caterpillars often eat leaves from the margins in. So by laying their eggs along the margins, they're kind of hoping that these caterpillars will consume those eggs. Now in some species, that's the step they need once they're inside the caterpillars, they'll then become an um, endoparasitoid, consume them. But there are some really weird species that have very kind of uh, baffling life history strategies where once they're inside the caterpillars, the eggs will lay dormant until they're actually taken by another hymenopteran as a food source like uh, a vespid wasp. So things like mud dawblers and kind of those orange and black or yellow and black wasps that collect caterpillars from your garden, they'll wait for those to come along, paralyze them with their sting and take them back to their nest where the trigonality larvae will actually hatch out, consume the host provisions and actually consume the wasp larvae as well. Double so layer. Oh, it's, just, it's so much complexity just to kind of grow up No, it's like you're just trying to reproduce yet you have so many different boxes that need to be ticked right
0: i was just thinking about if you're a a larva inside something like a caterpillar how are you breathing Hmm.
1: so this is something i never really thought about
0: because are they are they just getting the oxygen from the hemolymph of their host
1: i really don't know because oxygen would be moving passively through that substrate so i'm assuming that they would be doing something similar but I might have to do some reading after this because that's not something I've <laughs> never really thought about. It just popped into my head. Yeah. So it's, parasitoidism seems like a pretty lucrative
0: strategy. Has Did it evolve just once in the Hymenoptera and does it does this
1: strategy exist for other groups of insects? Uh, so it's definitely v- very common in Hymenoptera. It's uh, really, really successful and there's lots of different families within the Hymenoptera that would do use parasitism. But it evolved once or...? So... I'm not sure if it evolved just once. So I feel like from my understanding of the Hymenoptera tree of life, the the main phylogeny, there are points in time where it would have evolved, but there would be lineages that come off that point that have diverted away from parasitism. But I have a feeling that they would have moved into other specialised areas. So either exploiting specialised host resources or something, a great example is bees, so although bees aren't parasitic in, well, there are actually parasitic bees, There are more kleptoparasitic, so like cuckoo birds in the way that they steal other bee resources. Mm-hmm. You know, bees are placed within some of the speciform wasps, so they essentially form a monophyletic clade within these big wasp lineages. So the way I like to think about it is bees are just vegetarian wasps. Yeah,
0: specialised wasps, yeah. cool. So there's a lot of conversation around bees and the decline of bees and ecosystem services Um, What are some of the ecosystem services that parasitoid wasps provide?
1: Well, if I can take it back to Hymenoptera. So Hymenoptera do everything. As I said before, they're predators, parasitoids, they're pollinators. They kind of have their fingers in all the pies. And then when we look at actual parasitoids themselves, Parasitoids are fantastic at biological control units. So they're actually employed a lot in agriculture, but also just in kind of natural ecosystems where they keep uh, the balance in insect populations. So that's probably kind of their main thing. But then they also play a lot of roles as regards to food sources for other insects, as well as other animals. But the thing that a lot of people, I think, don't understand about parasitoids is that they're always in a lower abundance than their hosts. And so this is kind of scary from a conservation point of view because people, for example, are looking at bees and saying the bees are dying, we need to look after the bees. But when you look at a group of wasps like Gastroptheon that I work on, which specialise nearly exclusively on bees, they basically are always in lower abundance than their hosts. So if you have specific species of bees or specific groups that are beginning to decline, chances are the parasitoids are having a much harder time and probably in a, a bad state because they're so closely linked to their hosts.
0: So if we if we lose parasitoid wasps, what does that mean for the broader ecosystem and biodiversity?
1: Uh, well, we're going to lose a lot of biodiversity without parasitoid parasitoid wasps. Like some of the smaller parasitoid groups are. So sorry, when I say smaller, smaller in size, there's a, a group of uh, very lucrative parasitoids called calcid wasp, calcidoidia. And they, I think there's 10,000 described species currently. And that's probably looking at only a third of the real diversity. And so, for example, if we lost those, they lay eggs in everything. So other insect eggs, other insects' bodies, they they do so many kind of things when it comes to population control. You wouldn't have that service anymore. So we can look at other things pretty much going gangbusters, nothing keeping them in check.
0: Right, so it's like predator-mediated coexistence. Mm -hmm. Mm, Interesting, interesting. Is there a degree of,
1: host specificity
0: with parasitoid wasps? Is there um, a genus or a species that only, has a highly host specific that will only parasitize one particular insect? Or are there like really broad groups that they can parasitoids?
1: They do both. And so we have definitely um, very highly specialized systems and this is what makes them really good for biological control agents because you have a single species of parasitoid Mm. that will only attack a single species of host. And what that means is if you release it as a biological control, you know that they're only going to attack that one host. So you don't have to worry about them kind of diversifying into other food sources. But then you also have ones that are more generalised. But when I say generalised, it could be that they're more generalised on a species complex. It could be just a single genera, or it could be a family. So with my research at the moment in regards to host association, I've been trying to work out if gastroepctitis is uh host-specific, and there are you know a handful of taxa that we know are only recorded from a single host, whereas we're getting some kind of more widespread species that are found across you know the whole Paleoarctic and the Arctic regions that may attack a couple of families of bees, and so they attack maybe several genera within those, but then you have some that are completely polyphagous, so they'll attack any kind of cavity-nesting wasp or bee that they can find, as long as the nesting biology matches their... Uh, parasitism strategy so I think it all comes back to depending how specialized you are if you have specialized adaptations or specialized behavioral modifications right you have a tendency to be very specialized because yes. you've co-evolved them with a host mm-hmm. or <laughs> without the host really having a say in it probably to exploit them whereas if you're more generalized that gives you the flexibility to kind of if a certain food source isn't available you're able to kind of specialize somewhere else
0: now I'm hoping we can put up uh, one of the pictures from one of your papers because I was amazed at how clear and defined some of the images you took were. How
1: did you take those pictures? Oh, well, it's a fantastic technique called focal stacking. So normally, as you increase the magnification, your depth of field is gonna be severely reduced.
0: Distortions at various levels.
1: And so what we normally do is we take multiple photos at multiple levels, and then we use a program which stacks the focused parts of those images together into a single image. And so this is a really common technique for uh, insect work because, of course, the smaller they are, the harder it is to take photos. So this image stacking technique is is really the best way to do it. And so for the taxonomic work they do, that's how I create on my plate. So we'll have specimens either collected in the field or available in museum institutions. And then we'll be able to use one of these focal stacking camera rigs to get the angles that we want. And, you know, all the characters for taxonomic identification will be visible.
0: If people want to uh, have a look at some of the work you've done or find out more about what it is you do,
1: how is the best way to find you? Uh, I'm on most of the social media kind of setups. I'm the bentomologist, which <laughs> you always really enjoy. Um, well played, Twitter. sir. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm also sneaking around on Facebook as well. So you're always welcome to contact me and I'm always keen to see cool wasp photos or at least answer questions about wasps.
0: Cool. Well, we'll definitely link to uh, your socials um, in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're liking the content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight. If you'd like to support the production of this content, you could become a member of the biology society. Visit biologysocietysa.com.